appreciate that. We get to be a part of something that's bigger than just us. And uh, that's exciting for me. Exciting uh, to see how we can fulfill the mission better together. Uh, that being said, we're at the beginning of Lent, and uh, we actually just heard the passage that I'm going to ask you to look at a, a few minutes ago in that video. But I'm going to ask you to do something with me. You're going to see it on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Would you read this out loud with me together today? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Uh, last week, I had the privilege of announcing that Hannah Ahrens has accepted our part-time worship pastor, worship director position. Uh, she actually begins on April 3rd. She was in the first service, so you guys struck out. So uh, you'll have to be here next week and the week after and the week after that. But uh, we're excited about that. Now, if I'm going to be completely honest, I'm excited for some selfish reasons too. Uh, I found out not too long ago that Hannah grew up as a musical theater kid. I also grew up as a musical theater kid, and so she and I now uh, get to geek out while the rest of the staff looks at us and rolls their eyes as we belt out show tunes or whatever, but uh, I don't do that, just so you know. I only do that at home, right? At home. So uh, I'm really excited about that because actually Hannah and I have been in the same musical before, not at the same time. She's a whole lot younger than me. But uh, she and I have both been in a musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. How many of you have heard of that? How many of you saw my performance? Yeah, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, my word. <laughs> that was really, that was really weird. <laughs> um, back in 1992, six months after I gave my life to Christ, uh, I found myself cast in this musical about a biblical character. Literally, I knew zero. Info. I knew one Joseph in the Bible, and that was the one who was not Jesus' dad. And in uh, the whole Mary situation, that's the Joseph I knew. I didn't even know there was a Joseph in the Old Testament. And, uh, but here I am. And if you're not familiar with the life of Joseph, he's worth your time. It's Genesis chapter 37 through 50. So let me give you really quick the, the RBD version, Richard Benjamin Doring. This is the RBD version of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. No music, no singing, all right? So here's how this works. Jacob is a patriarch. He's one of the patriarchs in Israel, and uh, Jacob has 12 sons. It, Joseph is his favorite, and he's not real shy about that, okay? In fact, he gives him this Technicolor Dreamcoat to kind of show his favor, and he just loves Joseph, and it's fantastic, now, these other brothers, they're kind of like, what about us? This is complicated further by the fact that Joseph is becoming known for being able to interpret dreams or has these special dreams. And in some of these dreams, it becomes very, very clear as he begins to talk about these that these dreams have a lot to do with his brothers becoming subservient to him, him rising and his brothers serving him. And Joseph, because you make all kinds of decisions when you're young that are not good, he decides it's a good idea for him to tell his brothers these dreams. And so they're out in the field one day. He tells his brothers, oh, by the way, one day you're going to serve me. And his brothers are like, nope, we're done. We've heard this business on and off, and dad, your dad's favorite. We can't stand you. You're the best-looking one. All this kind of different stuff. And so they attack him. They throw him in a, in a pit, in a hole in the ground, and they're just going to leave him there. They're just going to leave him there and go back home. A bunch of slave traders come by, and these brothers, I mean, for their, I mean, they, they use their noggin, they're like, hey, we could make a buck here. 
So they decide, we're going to sell them to these slave traders. And so that's exactly what they did. They sell them to these slave traders that are passing through. They go home. They concoct this story to dad. Hey, dad, sorry, an animal ate Joseph. That's their story. And he buys it, and he's, he's torn apart. I mean, he, his life is never again the same because he's lost Joseph, his beloved son, right? Meanwhile, Joseph is being carted off to Egypt as a slave. He ends up in a guy named Potiphar's house as his servant, as his slave. And uh, Potiphar is kind of a finance guy. He's in charge of a whole lot of affairs for the Pharaoh, the most influential, most powerful person on the planet. And uh, you've got Potiphar. Potiphar is kind of his manager. And Joseph is working for Potiphar. And pretty soon Potiphar picks up that Joseph has some skills. I mean, he's He's pretty good at what he does, and he's good with numbers, and he can take care of things, and he, he has a lot of personal initiative and all this kind of different stuff. And so he begins to promote Joseph, and Joseph pretty soon pretty much starts running Potiphar's house. It's a good deal, but there's a problem. Potiphar has a wife who has a thing for Joseph. Now, Joseph has a lot of integrity. He, he's interested in serving God, which is fantastic. Potiphar's wife, not so much. She makes moves. She gives him the eye, all kinds of different stuff. And one day she makes her advance. And he's got so much integrity. He's like, no, I can't do this. And, and so he begins to run off. She grabs his cloak. He runs out of those clothes and out. So she screams, she yells, attack. And pretty soon everybody, including Potiphar, run in. And she's holding Joseph's clothes and says, he attacked me. He wanted to take away my purity or whatever. He wanted to do these things. And all of a sudden, what happens to Joseph? Joseph's thrown in prison. He's thrown in prison. He spends some time there. Now, he has some interactions in prison. I'm not going to get into that, but some years pass, some time passes. And, and this is a dead end, right? You can't get any more dead end than being in a prison, accused of what you've been accused of. Uh, he's, he's done. There's no reason to hope. Then one day, Pharaoh most powerful person in the world, starts having some weird dreams. In the musical, Pharaoh uh, doubles as Elvis. I know, it's awesome. <laughs> so Elvis starts having these dreams, okay? And, and he's, he's overwhelmed. He just doesn't know what to do. He, he can't understand why he's having these dreams. He's losing sleep. You know, he, he, he can't sing as well as he used to. I don't know, but he's having all kinds of problems. And so what happens is, there's a guy that was in prison with Joseph, and he remembers that Joseph could interpret dreams, and he's like, hey, there's this guy, Joseph. And so Pharaoh goes, well, send for him. Bring him before me. And so they go, they haul Joseph out of prison, bring him before the most powerful person on the planet, Pharaoh. Bring him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, here's my dreams. He shares the dreams, and Joseph, here's what he's saying, and in a nutshell, here's what the interpretation of those dreams were. All right, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years that are going to be amazing. I mean, you're going to have more grain than you know how to store. So you need to build some storehouses and stuff. You're, you're going to have abundance like you've never had abundance. Egypt is going to prosper. It is going to be absolutely amazing. Seven years. But the next seven years are going to be filled with famine and drought. So, Pharaoh, what you probably should do is take advantage of those first seven years so that when the second seven years come around, you're ready, you're prepared. 
You're absolutely prepared. And by the way, it's going to take like a lot of mental gymnastics to pull that off, a lot of administration, a lot of leadership skills. It's, you're going to have to have somebody who knows how to, who knows how to run the ship, man. You're, you're going to have to know how to, how to do all those things. And by the way, I know a guy. I'm the guy. And so Joseph gets a job. So he's out of prison. Now he's essentially Pharaoh's second-hand man to the point where he literally rises up and he is second in command of all of Egypt. This is the former guy who lived in another country, sold into slavery, been in prison, accused of inappropriateness, and now he's second in command in Egypt. And he's managing this thing. And they did, they had bumper crops and amazing things. They have more food in the second seven years than they even know what to do with because he's done such a good job. In the meantime, back in his homeland, his family, his brothers, and their father are starving. The famine and the drought had hit, and so they're stuck. They don't know what to do. And so they come up with this idea. They hear that there's a bunch of food down in Egypt. And so they decide, we're going to go down there, and we're going to represent our country, essentially. We're going to go down there, and we're going to ask them if they'll help us, give us some aid, give us some food to share. And so they do. Well, the very first person that they have to go through to get permission is the guy in charge of the show. It's Joseph, the guy they threw in a pit, the guy they sold into slavery, the guy that they think is dead, and they have to stand before him. They do not recognize him. He recognizes them. He sees them as his brothers, but they can't tell who he is. They don't know who he is other than he's the guy in the way of them getting some food. So Joseph has this amazing opportunity in this moment to literally drop the hammer. He has all this power at his disposal. And there's a series of events that take place. He tests them a little bit and all kinds of different stuff. Uh, we're not going to go into all the detail, but long and short of it, there comes a moment where he decides, I've got to reveal my identity to these, these men. I need to tell them I'm their brother, Joseph, who they thought was dead. And so he does. And there's this big moment, Hallmark. I mean, it's just this amazing thing. And uh, then, hey, bring dad. Go back, get dad, bring dad. In fact, bring everybody. We're all moving to Egypt, okay? So the entire family moves to Egypt, and Joseph's taking care of everybody. Pharaoh's on board. It's just this incredible family reunion. So it's amazing. The family's back together, right? Well, then a day comes, too, when Jacob, the father, the patriarch, dies. And the brothers get nervous. They're like, Dad's gone. And we know Joseph was Dad's favorite. And what's Joseph going to do now that Dad's gone? Is this when we finally get it? Is this where he finally drops the hammer and just nails us because of what we've done? And there's this exchange that happens. I want to read it for you. It's in Genesis chapter 50, verses 16 through 20. So they sent word to Joseph. This is after Jacob had died. Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I, this is important, 
Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What in the world does that have to do with peacemaking? And what does that have to do with Lent? I want you to take your finger and I want you to put it right there on Joseph. We're going to come back to that in a bit. The season of Lent is a time of preparation. It's these 40 days leading up to Easter as we march towards Easter together. And it's a time of preparation in really examining our lives and whether or not we are living what could be called cruciform lives. That's a really fancy word, cruciform, but it's got a really simple meaning. The cruciform life is cross-shaped. In Scripture, Jesus does this thing where he, he tells his followers all the time, hey, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up a cross. Pick up your cross. If you're going to follow me, truly follow me. A cross, an instrument of pain, an instrument of, of torture and suffering and death. Yet as followers of Jesus, our lives center on being cruciform. One where we live vertically fully for God, where we live selfishly fully for each other. It's a cruciform life. In fact, we're asked to live that life in such a way that when we do, there's a family resemblance to Jesus. We could be mistaken for belonging to Jesus, to God. And the cross, that cross leads to peace. The ancient word for peace is shalom. And the best way to define the word shalom or peace and peacemaking is everything as it should be. That sounds really good for somebody like me. I like, I like order, I like lists, I like pieces in their place. Everything as it should be, I go, ah, that feels good. Peace is everything as it should be, as it was intended to be. It's not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the pursuit of something, it's active. So knowing that, the first thing that we need to understand, if, if we are blessed to be peacemakers, it means peace is made. You make peace. Restoration, wholeness, reconciliation between people, between things. That does not just happen. It's not accidental. You don't stumble into peace. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peaceful. Blessed are you when you are full of peace. That's not what he says. He says, blessed when you make it. When you actually make peace, thinking back on last week when we looked at the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the same concept. You're blessed when you're driven by things being made right in you and then being made right in the world around you. You're not just simply satisfied receiving God's shalom or, or having the peace of God dwell in your heart. You're not just a consumer of God's peace. You're a conduit of God's peace to the world around you. You're a maker of peace. You're a peacemaker. But here's the challenge. Peacemaking actually requires risk. It requires initiative, um, self-denial. Being a peacemaker means forfeiting my personal rights, like the right to settle the score. Um, it's otherworldly, as poetic as the word peacemaker. It sounds good, doesn't it? There's just a good ring to it. I am a peacemaker. 
very poetic. Sometimes poets get shot, okay? Because peace is very countercultural. For the, and we'll talk about this at the end of the service. I've got a couple opportunities to share with you, but for the first time since the early 1980s, early to mid-1980s when I was in grade school, uh, doing drills where we would hide under a desk. Um, this is the first time since then, really, that there's daily conversation about thermonuclear warfare. Daily. This is an interesting time, isn't it? Over 2.5 million refugees now have fled the Ukraine. And who knows how many other Ukrainians are displaced. I mean, they're just not in their homes anymore. They're still within the confines of their country. But they're not home. And who knows at this point how many have been killed or will be killed. What is our default when we see some of that? Where's your mind go? I know where my mind goes. What do you think about? Somebody should do something, right? I mean, <laughs> that's immediately where I go. Somebody should do something to end the bloodshed. Somebody should do something to end this absolute nightmare. Somebody should do something to make peace. To make peace. But the peacemaking that Jesus is talking about here, that we're blessed for, is not what the world or many Christians think that it is sometimes. Our world has a desperate love affair with violence. Um, and so do a lot of Christians, including pastors who have loud voices and no accountability. And I say that for a reason. Uh, violence, a lot of times, is seen as a way, as a means of making peace. And I struggle with that. I, I struggle with balancing that because I see the same things you see. And man, to me, sometimes I sit there and I look and I think the answer to this is really simple. I think we know what to do that would end a whole lot of this. It's really, really simple, but it never is that simple, is it? It's never simple. It's hard. In 1872, the Colt Manufacturing Company made a single-action revolver for the U.S. military, and the nickname was the Peacemaker. There's something built into the fabric of who we are that has a tendency to view violence as a means of making peace. And this is hard, isn't it? This is hard, <laughs> because how long do you let certain things go? What do you do? But the very controversy surrounding that points to just how difficult the peacemaking business is. How easy it is to be misunderstood, to bring healing, to bring reconciliation, when actually the temptation is to bring retaliation or violence in order to achieve something else, in order to get to peace. And not much has changed in a couple thousand years. There's a guy, uh, fifth century, there was this Christian monk uh, Telemachus, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but sounds good to me. Telemachus, God had been working on him because as a monk, he lived in isolation. And he had achieved peace in his own life with God. He, he understood what it meant for him to be all things are, are, are in the right place. He, he had that for himself. But God was working on him because he, he, he allowed him to realize that that wasn't really everything God was asking him to do. He needed to be a conduit of peace for others. He needed to be actively serving people in the world. And so he left. He came out of isolation and he wandered into Rome. 
And when he came into Rome, he heard the cheers, he heard the noise, and so he entered the Colosseum. 80,000 people screaming and yelling and cheering, many of whom had just signed on to the recent national religion of Christianity. Screaming and yelling for the blood of the two men in the middle of the arena, gladiators killing each other. And as he stood there and looked around and heard everything that was going on and saw what was happening, he just thought, I'm supposed to make peace. And so he jumped in, jumped into the arena and stood in between both of them, separating them, ending the violence. And immediately, the crowd stoned him to death. Three days later, three days later, the emperor ended all gladiatorial contests for good. He was a peacemaker. He achieved his goal. But at what price? Peacemaking does not make sense. It doesn't fit. It's probably the best way to say it. It doesn't fit. Um, it don't fit the prevailing culture. And a lot of times pay the price. It's one thing to understand the lack of peace in the world that we live in. We see that all the time. Uh, but we also need to remember that peace gets personal really, really quickly. <laughs> really quickly. Jesus' words, they do. They have implications for the world stage. A primary context, though, for this is, I think, in the realm of personal relationships. Uh, our arena, your arena, my arena, is as much the United Nations as it is the local church, as it is the school that you go to or the workplace that you go to. This, this, is, this is our arena. And the Apostle Paul is so smart about this. He talks and essentially echoes Jesus' words, his command when he says this, Ephesians 4. Listen carefully. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice the tools, humility. It requires humility if you're going to make peace. It requires gentleness requires patience. You, <laughs> Patience. Making peace is hard. It's not easy. It's not natural, but it's personal. It's very personal. Sometimes I think it's good to share in, in our church, just generally speaking, with everybody in the church, aspects of the inner workings of our church, uh, like maybe a policy that we have in place or a procedure that we have in place uh, that we use on a regular basis. Just, you understand that there's more that goes on here than just when we're here for an hour on a Sunday. There's a lot of stuff that goes on through the week, a lot of exchanges. And so um, one of the things that happened was about a year ago, uh, the church board and the staff and myself, we began working a document, essentially, and it was a document about biblical reconciliation. What does it look like to go through biblical reconciliation? Because we know, and this is the people business, and people business is hard, and, I mean, how many of you have ever been in a relationship where all things were not as they should be, <laughs> where it lacked peace, okay? We, we've all been in those, and that happens in the church sometimes, too. We knew that we needed, to, like, a, a toolkit so that when those things happened, we could speak intelligently into those situations, biblically into those situations, so that reconciliation, true biblical reconciliation, could take place. So, we're at, our goal is shalom, shalom. 
And so what you see on the screen is actually just the first half of this document, but we define biblical reconciliation as the coming together of two parties with the end result being healthy and reasonably restored relations with no animosity or malice. That sounds pretty good to me, doesn't you? Required for that to happen, humility, confession, repentance, forgiveness, understanding. I would even go so far as you can't even have a conversation about biblical reconciliation unless you come with humility, confession, repentance, forgiveness, understanding. So what hinders those things? A lack of all of that. (laughs) Or harsh words and demands. Or a lack of practicing Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. There's another portion of the document that lays out some steps, some next things. I don't know about you, but that sounds like peace to me. Things being made right. It hangs on things like humility and confession, repentance, understanding, forgiveness, patience. All essential tools that a peacemaker brings to the table. So let me ask you a question. What tools do you bring to the table? When you come, what tools do you bring to the table to be a peacemaker? I want to make sure you understand something. Because there's always, it's not a caveat, but it's just a reality. And I want to make sure you're not hearing something I'm not saying. Um... I need to be clear about this. If you're being physically or emotionally abused and that's the reason that there's no peace in that relationship, we'll talk about peace in a bit. The first goal is to end that abuse. I hope you're understanding that. Um, Being a peacemaker um, takes a lot of work and it takes humility, it takes patience. But if you're being abused, if that's your situation, come talk to me. Come talk to me. Uh, That being said, I have been around the block enough times to know, unfortunately, from personal experience, uh, when it comes to interpersonal conflict, most of the time when people show up for that, they show up for a fight, and it's a fight to win. That's not humility. That's not patience. That's not understanding. That's, I'm going to win, okay? Listen, um, I'm right. The fact that you can't see that is not my fault. You're wrong. And the sooner that you understand that I'm right, the more we'll be at peace. How's that work for you? (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't work. Winning is not the goal. What is the goal? Peace. Things as they should be. Peace is made by two parties willing to humble themselves Be peacemakers. A church, listen, a church whose annual focus is one, unity. What does it mean in a divided world for us to be a not divided church, to not add to the division of this world? If the pattern of this world is division, we are called to not add to that division and to be united. Why? Because of John 17. We need to be the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he says, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. And then he says, then the world will know that you sent me by how we are unified, by how we are one. And listen, a church that says, hey, that's, that's our business. That's what we're about this year. We don't have the luxury of not being peacemakers. 
It's got to be a part of our toolkit. It's got to be a part of our DNA to make peace. That's why peace looks a lot like grace. Looks a lot like grace. We serve a God of grace. And peacemakers are daughters and sons of God, which means there's a family resemblance. There's a family resemblance, so peace and grace are partners. Like grace, peace comes at a cost. It costs something to give grace. It costs something to make peace. But no one, not to the one who receives it. It costs the person who gives it. Uh, It's the giver who absorbs the cost. When there's a lack of peace, the peacemaker is the one who pays the price. That does not sound blessed to me. (laughs) I don't know how that sounds to you. Here's why I think we love to sing about grace, but we're so hesitant to give it. It's because we know that the moment we put ourselves in a situation to give grace or to make peace, we're forced into cruciform living. Self-denial. Selflessness. Dying to self. Follow me here. Peacemakers aren't blessed because you get some kind of reward at the end of the, at the end of your journey because you are a peacemaker. That, that's not why. Peacemakers are blessed because of what peacemaking says about them. It says they look like Jesus. When you're, when you're making peace, you look like Jesus. You look like you're actually a part of the family when you make peace. One summer in college, I worked um, at my grandpa's business, Doring Truck Parts. And my dad worked there, my uncles worked there. And uh, just working in the warehouse. And one day, my, uh, later in a day, one of my dad's customers came in, he had a massive order. And, uh, and he had a semi-trailer that we had to load. So I knew when I saw him pull up and, saw, and pulled the sheet that I was gonna be there for a couple hours after we closed. And so I just got to work. I started doing what we needed to do. I chatted with him just a little bit. and. First hour goes by, second hour goes by, I'm getting hangry, you know, all that kind of good stuff, but this is my job, and we take care of customers, and so that's what I did. We finished it up a couple hours late, and closed him up, signed the paperwork, he's ready to pull off, and he paid me probably, yeah, it's probably the best compliment I've ever been paid in my whole life. He said, hey, thanks for the extra effort. I can tell you're Ron Doring's kid. So my dad was known for treating his customers well. And somehow, in that moment, he looked at me and he saw my dad. And that is a really cool thing. A really cool thing. Peacemaking is an extension of our Father's work. We are an extension of Him. We are blessed when the world looks at us and says, That's God's kid. (laughs) He's in the family. She's in the family. During Lent, as we move closer and closer towards the cross, this becomes so much clearer. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one who puts himself right in the middle. He's the ultimate peacemaker. He humbled himself. He's patient with us. He's forgiving. He inserts himself into our drama 
selflessly. He builds bridges. He tears down walls. He gives grace. He gives grace through his death on a cross. He makes peace between God and man through his death on a cross. He's the ultimate maker of peace, that cruciform life. So take that finger. Here's Joseph. The very people that sold Joseph into slavery, his family, total betrayal. I mean, can you, can you imagine this? This is his family that sells him into slavery, writes him off as dead, okay? They are standing before him, bowing on their knees before him, asking for help. Oh, baby, I'm not kidding. You talk about temptation right in that moment. Would you not? Are you that much holier than I? I, I mean, would you not be tempted in that moment to think, okay, here we go. Now, there is a little stuff that does happen in there. He tests them and does some stuff, but, but ultimately he just comes to this point. He comes to this point where instead, instead of enslaving them, instead of exercising his power, exercising his right to, to honestly execute them, he could have killed them and everybody would have probably just said, well, I mean, he had a reason. Is Joseph. I mean, he was a legit guy in that moment. But with his enemies right in front of him, Joseph chose peace. He made peace. He offered grace, reconciliation, and seeing their fear before him. I want you to listen to his words again because they're important. Don't be afraid, and then here it is. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Those words, I'm so glad I was in that musical in 1992. Those are powerful words. Those are not normal words. That does not come from a normal place. After you suffered and went through what he went through, that is not normal. That comes from something. Those words sound really familiar. Those words might only be surpassed in Scripture by one other passage. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. The words of Jesus on the cross. A victim of things not as they should be. For you and for me, calling for grace, calling for peace between God and man, and then putting himself on the cross to accomplish it. That's true peace. That's real life. I chose Joseph's story because I think we can all relate to a certain extent. Um, knowing things are not as they should be, particularly when they're personal things that are not as they should be, I think there's a huge temptation, particularly in our relationships, to not choose peace, but to maybe turn towards other solutions that don't necessarily quite look like Jesus. That do not restore things, restore to things as they should be. That are not making peace. And while, while their statements sound familiar and sound similar, the statements between Joseph and Jesus they're different in a very significant way. Joseph had the luxury of sitting on a throne, essentially, from a place of comfort 
and position and power and offering peace. Jesus Christ offered words of peace from a cross. Joseph asked that question. Am I in the place of God? In other words, hey, I have forgiven you and God has forgiven you. I cannot judge you for these things anymore. I'm not God. Okay? I'm not your judge. God is. What if Jesus had asked the same question while he was hanging on the cross? While people were spitting on him, while people were, were abandoning him left and right, while his mother's weeping right in front of him as he's heaving for every single last breath he could take, what, what if Jesus in that moment would have said, am I in the place of God? The answer would have been no. Jesus was not offering peace to you and I in the place of God. He was offering peace to you and I in our place. Taking the punishment for us. Paying for our sin. He was offering us peace from our place. What sin earns us. Father, forgive them, not because they deserve it or even understand what they've done, not even because they want it, but forgive them because things are not as they should be. And I love them. And I'm willing to do what is necessary so that things might be as they should be. His words are actually a prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But there's something more. They're an offer of peace to anybody whose life is still not as it should be with God. It's an offer of salvation. A promise that God will not treat us as betrayers, but instead as daughters and sons invited into the extension of peacemaking that he started in us. My prayer for all of us as we continue to march towards Easter is that we truly let God look at our hearts and ask the tough questions. Just like I said last week, how are you doing spiritually? My job is to ask you, how are you doing spiritually? Has God revealed anything to you today that needs to be dealt with? Can I pray for you? And maybe in your heart, if you want to pray at the same time. Father, I just come before you today and I recognize that this peacemaking business is easier said than done. And Father, maybe I've just never understood truly the kind of peace that you extend to me. So would you help all of us today reckon with the reality of our need, of our separation, and maybe even in, in humility, not in a self-deprecating way, but in, in humility, just acknowledge that living that cruciform life is hard. We've not done it perfectly. So Father, we know you have grace to meet us where we are, that you can help us as we continue to give our lives over to you, to walk in step with the Spirit. And I pray that for all of us. And I pray that every single person that hears my voice today, Father, would know your Son, would know the blessed gift of forgiveness and peace. Peace. Things as they should be. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, I'm proud of you. Over the course of the last year, um, you know, change, change is change. It just, you know, <laughs> happens. And uh, 
I've, I've witnessed and heard language this last year from you about reconciliation, keeping short accounts. I'll probably have to forgive, you know, I'll pay the price for preaching those sermons about keeping short accounts forever, I think. But uh, uh, I've heard you and seen you go to different lengths to offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness from one another and different things. I'm just watching kind of this culture emerge in our church where there's just a reality that, yeah, we we don't do certain things. (laughs) We, We treat each other well. We love one another. We honor one another. We forgive one another. And I just want you to know I'm proud of you, uh, proud of how I see you acting and living, and I'm privileged to be a part of that. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Uh, really quick, you'll see on the screen. Some of you have asked me. It's been a couple weeks now, but uh, if you want to give to help anybody in Ukraine, I would love to see you do this. Uh, you can see it on the screen Nazarene Compassion Ministries. If you go to ncm.org slash Ukraine or just Google Nazarene Compassion Ministries, you're going you're gonna to stumble upon this. There are missionaries. There are volunteers in mission. There are all kinds of people right now on the ground, um, right there on the border of Poland, everywhere, that, that are literally greeting refugees right now as we literally speak. And they're providing humanitarian effort, providing aid, providing housing in many instances, all kinds of different things. This is one of those ways where if you kind of wondered, is there anywhere I can give where I know it's just going to immediately go to use? This is it. This is it. Uh, and while you're at it, stumble around that Nazarene Compassion Ministries website. You can get lost for hours, just absolutely blown away by the incredible work that's being done all over the world through the Church of the Nazarene and Nazarene Compassion Ministries. It's absolutely amazing. We need to open our eyes to understand that you and I are a part of something a whole lot bigger than we think. Oh, a whole lot bigger. It's absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. The second thing there is, if you go to Facebook and follow the Eurasia region of the Church of the Nazarene, that whole part of the globe right there is called Eurasia in the Church of the Nazarene. And we've got a ton of work going on there, and they are really, really good on their Facebook page about telling you exactly what's going on right now. And uh, we have a lot of churches in the Ukraine. We have pastors in the Ukraine that are being displaced, that are serving people, that are doing all kinds of different stuff. So if you follow that, that would be absolutely amazing. And uh, I just continue to pray. Continue to pray. Sound like a deal? Why don't you stand? A few uh, weeks ago, I introduced to you something, and uh, I want to close with it. Um, I'll just say it, but uh, you might be hearing more of this as we go through life together this next year, but uh, this is kind of the real-life benediction. May the bond of peace of Jesus Christ go with us. As we seek to love God as one, may he guide us in humility, gentleness, and patience. As we love people as we've been loved, may the compassion of Jesus Christ be in us. As we serve the world in word and deed, And may he bring us together again, rejoicing as his children, as we live in real life with Christ. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. God bless.